SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. Welcome to a new edition of the Conference USA Underdog Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. Uh, going into week 12, the final week, well, I guess it's technically like, what, week 13, Eric? I mean, technically it's week 12 for a lot of these teams as they're playing their 12th game. But, uh, you know, I don't know. It's weird. Time between August and January really seems to fly by. Like, it feels like I fell asleep in August and and woke up now in in late November. But, I mean, I'm tired, you know. (laughs) And that probably has something to do with uh, just how busy this season has been for Conference USA between – Conference realignment, uh, some really good things with UTSA success and uh, UAB, you know, giving them giving them hell over the weekend. Western Kentucky and Marshall both playing really well, but it has not been a, a quiet week in CUSA, uh, and that seems to be the case with pretty much every week since the season started. Yeah, first off, good day, my fine sir, fine gentleman, Joe Londergan. I think part of the reason you are tired is because you live in the Pacific Northwest, so I mean, there's that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the way that the year just plays out, I will agree with you. First off, that damn week zero, it always throws me off, right? That's where you get the, you know, week 13, but it being week 12. But no, the season absolutely has flown by. And I do agree that the latter part of the year, it's like you hit summer, and especially here in Florida, nine, 10 months out of the year at summer, right? So you don't have the seasons to kind of tee you in or kind of clue you in as to when things are changing. But you hit August, right? And kids go back to school and football season comes around and then it just flies. Next thing you know, it's the holidays. So here we are. Eric, with how you address me on this show, you you talk to me like uh, Ron Burgundy talks to his dog, Baxter. He's like, you are my little gentleman. <laughs> I'll take you to foggy London town. <laughs> when he throws the burrito out the window and hits Jack Black in the face. That's that's what it reminds me of every time. So I just thought I'd share that. I, I, I didn't get the, uh, the movie reference last time, but I absolutely get the Ron Burgundy reference. So for any of uh, our listeners who enjoy our cultural differences, sorry, this is not one that you will have. I... I, I would not be a, a, a you know perfectly rational human being if I hadn't got that reference. So uh, I, I, I will agree. That's a, it's a keen observation on your part. Listen, when they used a line from Blades of Glory on Watch the Throne, I, I think we I think we kind of crossed the line in terms of who Will Ferrell movies are are culturally relevant to. So, but. yeah, the cross pollination exists there, right? When it's all Watch the Throne, which great Watch the Throne reference by you, by the way, Joe. I'm, I'm impressed. I, I know I know a little bit. I know a little bit, and which, by the way, I I put this on my Twitter. I just I, I mess around with Instagram Reels occasionally. It's usually just stupid things of my dog and my cat but did you see the one that i posted on my my twitter it was queen b and king yay correct yeah those are apparently my celebrity parents and i was just like i i really have no response to that but <laughs> sure i'll take it i mean i'm gonna assume most people listen to this podcast follow us on twitter so they know what you look like and uh yeah 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 i mean i did that was like I, I was just kind of messing around with it because the first one I got James McAvoy and uh, Cara Delavigne. 
which oh, with okay. the the blunt with the blue eyes, the kind of furrow brow, I kind of got that. I was like, what happens if I do it again? And then it was like, oh, now it's just messing <laughs> with me. Okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but like speaking of like things we did not expect, I did not expect the success that Southern Miss is having with this single wing super back system. Uh, and they beat Louisiana Tech 35 to 19 over the weekend. Uh, no quarterbacks available once again for the Golden Eagles. So Frank Gore Jr. under center again uh, for his team. And he completes four of eight for 75 yards, two touchdowns, and an interception through the air. And he also ran for a touchdown. Uh, Tech also had five turnovers compared to Southern Misses three. So obviously that played a little bit of a factor. Um, But Eric, I think we legitimately need to ask the question, is this system really that effective for Southern Miss or is Tech just that bad right now or, or is it a little bit of both? So you know what's interesting, right, is I didn't have a chance to watch this game live. I caught little snippets here and there. And of course, you got to give a shout out to Frank Gore Jr. You talk about the system, but he threw a little dime to Jason Brownlee in the end zone. That was, I mean, I, I'm sure you saw me tweet that out and just think, man, uh, we're in a world where we got Frank Gore TD passes. What a time to be alive. And not little, you know, jump passes like Tim Tebow back at Florida. Legit dime. Uh, hung up there a little bit, but still got the job done. But what I was getting at, Joe, is I had a chance to watch Will Hall's press conference from earlier uh, in the week. It was yesterday he had this press conference and kind of my prep for the FIU game. And, Joe, he talked about that. Not that this is something they're going to do long term, right? But given his offensive history, he has a his offensive background, I should say. He has a history of players who have kind of been those jack of all trades guy. I think the most recent one that he referenced that some CUSA fans may be familiar with, Amari Jones, was at Tulane. I'm forgetting where Amari is now. I think we saw him earlier this year. I can't remember where. Oh, man. And, and oh, no, Georgia Southern. There we go. Just right. So perfect example, Joe. He's at uh, Amari Jones was at Tulane when Will Hall was the offense coordinator. And uh, Amari Jones actually started a game this year, I think, against Florida Atlantic at quarterback. Right. So he has a, a, a lot of offensive, um, a lot of history with kind of that, you know, wildcat kind of position. So I just think it's a confluence of a the circumstances that they're in with the quarterback situation and B you have a head coach who has a lot of experience taking, you know, that type of player who can, you know, again, you're not asking your running backs to throw 20 passes, but four of eight for 75 yards, you go eight of 13 for 110 yards. Joe, that sounds like uh, not turn to the Sunbelt podcast. That sounds like a Georgia Southern type of game, right? A Georgia Southern Navy Air Force type of offense, right? So I just think it's the combination of those two things where it's really worked out. And again, the fact that, Will Hall committed to it. You saw Frank Gore's rushing numbers, only four carries at two yards. So he was not, you know, playing running back and we're just going to have him their quarterback. He was the quarterback and it, it worked a success. So kudos to Will Hall. I mean, I guess, you know, quickly to touch on Louisiana Tech. That's why, Joe, I'm kind of emphasizing the fact that this isn't, I don't want to say not luck, but it's not something gimmicky, right? Like Will Hall has this in his background. Because if you look at it on its surface, People are just probably going to crap on Skip Holtz and say, man, they lost to a team with no quarterbacks and the running back is doing this. But it's not quite that. So you got to give Will Hall some credit. And of course, the quarterback situation with with Louisiana Tech in terms of Austin Kendall not being able to go. They didn't go with J.D. Head. They went Aaron Allen, who had a nice game the other week, but kind of, you know, fell back to earth. I just think it's just a combination of those things. It's funny you mentioned Georgia Southern. I had the exact same thought when I was – 
uh, watching this game over the weekend, Georgia Southern has to be kicking themselves that they didn't make a bigger push to uh, bring Frank Gore Jr. in. Uh, because of you hit on Amari Jones and kind of the the success or lack thereof he's had kind of playing the quote unquote quarterback role for George Southern this year. And I think he started multiple games. I'd have to ask Brian Stone about that. But yeah, it's a very similar system. And that that kind of makes a lot of sense when you look at uh, Will Hall's pedigree. And I'm, I'm kicking myself because when I was uh, unemployed and just bored out of my mind a couple of years ago, I read a lot of books about, you know, Newt Rockney and the T formation and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, that, that how popular that offensive system was in kind of the early days of the sport and to see them kind of return to it. Now it, it, it warmed a very specific part of, of my heart, Eric. And to think it all came from the child of, boxing star frank gore senior well played boxing star frank gore i i okay joe 30 seconds on this what the hell is sure. that man like listen are you just that bored because i was having a, a conversation with my boy about this yo i can't just be like hey you want to fight because i have to have a reason to want to fight someone i don't have i don't have it in me just be like oh i'm bored yo darren you want to fight like punch each other what I I don't know, man. That's some people have that built into their their brain. I'm not one of those people, but I definitely went to high school with people like that who would just like, you know, square up on their off time for fun and then just like dap up at the end and, and be homies after. So like I don't I don't know what that's about, but Apparently, Frank Gore is one of those people, and I, I don't know what his personal relationship is with Derek Williams. I didn't watch the fight. I, I don't, I'm not a boxing guy, but it's, it's wild that celebrity boxing in general has kind of like seen the push that it has the last like year and a half. Right. I mean, listen, we won't belabor this point too much, but that's Joe. That's the point. The point you made about he's going to dap up afterwards. I don't have that in me. Like if I am fighting you, right. And I know people will probably say, oh, you play football. It's the same thing. Physical contact. No, like physical contact is one thing. We're talking about we're punching each other in the face. I'm, I hope they're not hurting for money. Uh, I don't think Frank Gore Jr. or excuse me, Frank Gore or Darren Williams are hurting for money. So yeah. A- anyhow, I, I we we could well, but I, I just had to run that by and get your thoughts because it it's as curious to you seemingly as, as it is to me. The pandemic has done weird things to sports, and that's that's just one of them, I guess. I don't I don't know what else to attribute it to really. Uh, with that, let's move on to Western Kentucky and FAU. Uh, tops come through when they needed a win to stay alive in the league title race, fifty-two to seventeen, the final here. Uh, Bailey Zappi threw six touchdowns and two interceptions, 470 yards through the air here. Mitchell Tinsley and Jarrett Stearns combined for 21 receptions, three touchdown catches, and 307 yards. A really huge day for that receiving duo, Jarrett Stearns. Uh, we'll talk about it a little bit, but how he's not uh, in the finalists for the Boletnikoff is crazy. And Mitchell Tinsley has had just an incredible like two, three-game streak here. Um but to, to that point, Zappi is within striking distance of the most passing touchdowns and the most passing yards in a single season in FBS history. And uh, not a Davey O'Brien Award finalist either. Incredibly. I don't know how that happened. But to speak to this game, FAU really needed a strong day, and they just didn't get it on either side of the ball. And consistently getting performances like this when you have the kind of talent that FAU does – it makes me question how many more chances Willie Taggart's realistically going to get. Yeah, Joe. See, it's interesting, right? 
you you mentioned that they didn't get a good day on a, on either side of the ball, and I I'm not saying that FAU's defense played great, right? But here's the thing with Western Kentucky: the thing that makes their offense so dangerous, and what I mean by dangerous in terms of you can get out of a game quickly, is if you can't go tit for tat, you cannot trade threes for sevens. And if you don't go tit for tat early, like when the first two to three drives, you can very quickly end up down 21-3, which is what happened to FAU. In the opening drive, so I really quick just, you know, I had a chance to take this game in uh, via the old school way on radio. Shout out to Ken LaVica and Chris Bartels, the radio duo for FAU Fox Sports 640 in South Florida. I had a chance to listen to the game as I was making my drive down to FIU, you can't go three and out to open the game, right? Because then you put in their hands, touchdown. Then you get a short field, right? You get a short field on your second drive, go 11 plays, 33 yards. So Joe, anytime you hear an 11 play, 33 yard drive, you know, at some point in time, you're probably having some sort of penalties either on your end that are nuking the drive and you just had a short field, which I think this drive started, it started at the Western Kentucky 49. So at that type of field, you're supposed to have get seven, right? They aren't able to do that. Western Kentucky, Western Kentucky comes back, scores a touchdown. Then they, they, they punt, touchdown. You uh, turn over on downs, and then the pick six. By, th- th- by, uh, by that point in time, excuse me, it was a pick, yeah, pick six for, for, um, for FAU, which was really their first score. But that was really the only semblance of offense they had in the first half. I think they got the late touchdown, which I, I believe that drive may have been when Nick Tronti was inserted in. So just overall, my point, Joe, is we've talked about slow starts with FAU but in specificity when playing a team like Western Kentucky you just can't afford to you know have these these errors and then not take advantages not take advantage of the opportunities given to you and yeah we talked about talent and now I think the question lies with a five and six I definitely want to get your thoughts before we transition to the next game um your thoughts on the five and six record three and four in conference you know kind of your um assessment as far as Willie Taggart not saying we're gonna put him on the hot seat but I'm just you know and curious your thoughts but as a whole with FAU, I'm wondering, we had them as one of the more talented teams in the conference coming into the year. I believe they were voted second in the conference in the East as far as, you know, who would finish um, one, two in the East division. But Joe, have we gotten to a point where maybe we just overrated their talent and this is what they are? Because I was hesitant to go that route given the success they had under Lane Kiffin and a lot of those guys uh, the last conference championship team that Lane Kiffin had are on this roster. Guys like Malcolm Davidson, Amon Ross, Kiki Leroy, Willie Wright, et cetera. You can go down, down the list of guys. Or is this what maybe I'm kind of leaning more towards? So I know I've left you with a bunch of things to kind of touch on, but could this be a situation where Willie Taggart is just saying, hey, I'm going to play my scheme and you bring in transfers and guys who you've, had, you've recruited other stops to kind of fit that scheme. And it's just not necessarily the right mix of guys for success for FAU. Yeah, I think that's a valid criticism. To your original question, I think, is did we overrate the talent on FAU? Uh, Probably slightly. I mean, I don't think you, you know, have kind of the collapses that FAU's had over the course of this year if you are a a truly great team. Um, I also think it, it has something to do with something that you touched on there. And I hit on this a little bit in my recap of this game as well. A, a lot of what FAU has done well, especially as of late and also just kind of over the course of the last couple of years, is build an offense centered around the run. And when you play an offense that is – when you play against an offense, rather, that is – 
as fast as Western Kentucky is and as you know, centered around just the passing game, which is the case with Old Dominion uh, in their previous game and uh, to a lesser extent Marshall uh, in their game prior to that one, you really can't afford to get down early, which is, you know, what you said, because that type of offense is simply not built to play from behind. But yeah, I mean, I think with with what the difference between what Lane Kiffin did and what Willie Taggart's done is just kind of the way that he was able to bring guys from different systems, different uh, backgrounds together and just sort of like get them to understand, like we're here to win games, put everything else aside, learn the system and deal with it. And that, that doesn't seem to be what Willie Taggart's done. I know Willie Taggart's big on culture and getting guys to buy into that. And that's really hard to do when you're also bringing in guys from all over the map in terms of remaining eligibility, in terms of, you know, the types of systems that they came from previously, whether it was in college or high school or JUCO or whatever. So I think it's a lot of things. And I, you know, I don't know how self-aware Willie Taggart is of, of what he's done or the situation that he's put himself in rather, but I, you know, it's, I'm starting to question whether it's it's too late for him or not, especially with like how how quickly you need to you know rebound from this kind of thing. I, I was talking to an SID at the FCS level um, the other day, and he basically said there's two types of coaches. There's coaches who build programs, and there's coaches who build teams. I think Willie Taggart is a guy who builds programs, but at the same time, it takes a long time, and you're not going to build a program the way that they've recruited necessarily, or like it's not going to happen instantaneously when you have to implement such a complete shift in philosophy from what Lane Kiffin did, if that makes sense. No, no. And like I said, I know I left you with a bunch of questions in there. So I'm glad you, you were able to decipher through the, my rambling and touch on all of them. I do think it's fun. Listen, we're going to talk about Western Kentucky, Bailey Zappi, Jerry Stearns in the middle part. So for the Tops fans listening, please don't think we're just overlooking the fact it was a great win and they are in position uh, next week to win the East. I just think, put you this way, Joe, I don't know how you felt coming to the year. I think we kind of were on the same page. If you said at this point, Western Kentucky be seven and four with a chance to play for the East title, that would not have shocked anybody. At least it wouldn't have shocked you or I. With FAU being five and six and fighting for their bowl lives, especially with some of the losses they've had, I think that would have been the more surprising things. Maybe that's why we're harping on FAU a bit. But to quickly touch on the point that you made, yeah, I, I think, and in recently, I don't know if it's been, a recruiting thing because I mean obviously they have recruited some players but they've also brought in a fair amount of transfer guys who Willie Taggart had experience with in the past whether they recruited them to Florida State or was at Florida State and yeah it just seems like a mix of players who have overlapped from two different systems and you know it's interesting I think maybe it's not it's not as drastic it's not as as, as glaring if FAU hadn't had the success they'd had prior to Willie Taggart but I also think, quite frankly, it might be a little bit easier to have, and granted, FAU didn't bring in the amount of transfers that Western Kentucky did, but I think it might be a little bit easier to have that kind of shift when you have, and you know this, Joe, the amount of guys from the Mike Sanford era who left, that gives you an opportunity to bring an entirely new shift of guys instead of trying to you know, mix and match some guys here, some guys there, um, and make it work. Yeah, and in my opinion, I think here's the difference between 
what Western Kentucky did and what FAU did in terms of transfers. I think, A, with that offense, you basically just transplanted the entire Houston Baptist offense, more or less, just into Bowling Green, Kentucky. They already had that chemistry built. There's already that uh, that shorthand and that relationship between Zappy and the Stearns brothers and uh, offense coordinator Zach, Kip, uh, Zach Kitley. Uh, I mean, Ben Ratzlaff as well, but let's be honest, he has not been nearly the factor that those other guys have been this year. But to that extent, it, that's not really the case with FAU. That that bond and that shorthand still needs to be developed, and it takes time. It's not going to happen overnight. And it didn't happen overnight for you know the Houston Baptist Five. It, it built over like four years in, you know, at the FCS level. And then they basically just switched uniforms and Tyson Helton, uh, you know, has obviously played a part in it, but (laughs) you basically just kind of took something that already existed. And you kind of just with the fact that it's, you know, a strong nucleus with Bailey Zappi and then the other pieces around him, it's, you know, it works. And it's, it's not the same when you have Nikosi Perry and then, all these other pieces who are also from all these other different systems. And then also it doesn't, you know, it, it hurts as well when sure you have Tyson Helton who has experience uh, running those offenses that are centered around the pass. And they're definitely air raid reminiscent, just not quite to the extent that that Kitley runs them. But then with FAU, like, the offense was more or less always kind of based around the run. And it has been for the past like five, six years dating back to when, you know, Devin Singletary came in and looked like a man amongst boys. But I, you know, I I think all that to say, there's definitely a difference between what Western and and FAU are doing, but uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about Western later, but I think that's kind of where we are in that conversation. All right. Before we talk about, UTSA and UAB for complete transparency, Eric, and for complete transparency for the audience. We stopped recording there for a second because uh, my my fiance calls me and typically she only calls me if it's important. And usually we just communicate via text when we're not together. And uh, <laughs> I guess it was important, depending on your definition of important. Uh, she was basically saying they're out of rosemary for cooking the turkey this weekend and she needed to know what to get instead. So... <laughs> But uh, no, I, okay. So I paused for a second because right after you completed that sentence, I, I heard a sound from the background, and I was wondering, well, was that her? You know, chiming up saying like, "Man, you just really dimed me out." And I realized it was probably your cat, correct? Yeah, that's that's my cat, who's basically <laughs> like, "What the hell, bro? Where's dinner?" So, <laughs> all right. oh man, all right. All right. Yeah, well, we're all we're, we're all we're all good. We're all good. We'll, we'll get to you in a little bit, Kat. Um, but first, let's talk about uh, the Roadrunners getting their uh, CUSA West title well-deserved. 34-31 uh, to 31 was the final. Uh, in my opinion, definitely the game of the year in CUSA so far. Uh, both teams just left absolutely everything out there, and it was a privilege to watch. Uh, to bring you to the end of the game, UAB punts with a four-point lead with about a minute left. And that gives Frank Harrison Company enough time to put together a seven-play, 77-yard drive that ends with a touchdown pass uh, as time expired to tight end Oscar Cardenas. That was actually tipped by a UAB linebacker, but Cardenas able to maintain that concentration and pull it in. Uh, so as I said, UTSA clinch uh, CUSA West. 
they clinch the privilege to host the CUSA championship game. Uh, they're going to play the winner between Marshall and Western Kentucky, as we'll talk about. Uh, but UAB's CUSA West title streak uh, comes to an end. Uh, not for lack of trying, though. They, they really played well, except for that weird decision to punt at the end there. Well, I mean, and listen, I, I understand you, what you're saying about it being, you know, quote unquote, uh, kind of a curious decision. In my mind, I guess I just think Bill Clark has so much faith in his defense. He's like, hey, they can go out there and get one more stop, right? And we'll say this, or I will say this, this is not the same UTSA of old. And when I say that, <clears throat> excuse me, when I say that, I'm referring to not necessarily the pre-Jeff Trailer years. I'm just referring to Frank Harris's development as a quarterback. And I saw a tweet, I want to say it's from J.J. Perez, who does a great job covering the Roadrunners down there in San Antonio, who said that Frank Harris has endured so much criticism in terms of, you know, injuries and can't be consistent and so on and so forth. I honestly think it's criticism. I think some of that stuff was warranted. Now, listen, I am not clearly not as close to the program as those guys are, Jared Kalmus and Greg Luca and J.J. Perez and others, right? But there were question marks coming into this year. So, would it be a combination of, you know, Sincere McCormick's legs and Frank Harris's legs? Uh, would they have to ride Sincere McCormick? Or could Frank Harris take that next step? Joe, again, I, I don't know, you know, who will win CUSA MVP or Offensive Player of the Year. But every time Frank Harris needs to step up and it's a big time game, he did it against Western Kentucky. And he did it here. 25 or 36 for 323 and three TDs. And as you mentioned, the last touchdown, the game-winning touchdown, which, Joe, you didn't even mention the fact that it was a bit of a low bobbled snap. I think I, uh, it looked to be like low, and Frank Harris couldn't pull it in as well. So the ball hit the turf. Since their record has the presence of mind to, as he's coming through to kind of, you know, slide in for a block, gets his leg out of the way so he doesn't kick the ball away from Frank Harris as he's trying to recover it. And then you mentioned the pass, him being a lefty, and the pass gets tipped by the UAB linebacker. And it lands right in the hand of Oscar Cardenas. I mean, just everything going right for the Roadrunners. But yeah, I mean, I think it's just great in, in terms of you mentioned game of the year. I wouldn't want to have this any other way, right? You in order to be the man, you got to beat the man. And the fact that UTSA had to go through UAB, not just go through them, you're like, hey, you got to beat UAB. But if they lose this game, it would have been UAB's division to essentially win. Couldn't have asked for a better circumstance, better scenario. And I'm hoping I, I, well, I shouldn't openly come out and root, right? Because we have Marshall fans listening to this podcast and they have a chance to win the East, right? And we've had Coach Huff on and, you know, he did a great job. But I guess there's just part of me that would love to see a rematch between UTSA and Western Kentucky, given how good that game is. Not that Marshall couldn't put together, you know, fine game of their own, right? But part of me deep down is secretly kind of just, we got such a good game last time and this time, we got a deeper Western, or I should say deeper, but a, a Western Kentucky team that's running on all cylinders, and they got to head to the Alamo Dome. I would want to see that, but all in all, to keep it on this game, great job at UTSA. You know, to be the man, you got to beat the man, and they match to do that. For sure. And, I mean, I think it, it, you know, people know at this point that I'm hoping Western Kentucky gets back to the championship game at this point. And it'd also be fascinating because uh, – all those those Houston Baptist guys, uh, Zappy in particular, from Victoria, and uh, that's not too far from San Antonio. So it's going to be a little bit of a homecoming in a way. Um, but to go back to this game, absolutely right. Frank Harris has been just a stud, and kudos to him for not only just playing the way he's played, but overcoming the injuries and uh, getting himself back to really an elite level in, in this point. And – 
you know, you hit on it, and I, I should have mentioned it at first. The level of concentration that he displayed to get that fumbled snap back and get himself in a position where he could complete that pass to Cardenas at the end, it's really a testament to the kind of a leader he's been really all year. I mean, he has just been so calm under pressure, led his team through some really competitive games. And, you know, I, I you're right. I absolutely think, it, <laughs> well, had we, if we didn't have another quarterback within the league that was putting up a near historic numbers air rate or not, I think uh, Frank Harris would be absolutely be the CUSA offensive player of the year. Um, to go back to UAB for a second, here's why I have a problem with um, the decision to punt at the end there. Uh, Dwayne McBride finished this game with 24 carries for 144 yards and a touchdown, averaged six yards per carry. Really, their uh, UAB's offensive line was was getting it done up front, creating a lot of leverage, creating space for him to run through. And when you look at the way that McBride ran in this game, he was getting a lot of his yardage after contact. He, I definitely think he could have converted. And as a Seahawks fan, that that hits me even a little bit harder. No, listen, I, I, you're not wrong there, right? I'm, I'm not going to completely dismiss the idea that you got a great back and he could pick up a couple of yards. I guess I'm just thinking the fact that UAB is a team that's been so defensive driven over the past really five years. You're probably thinking, all right, you know, with what a minute and change left, they can get one stop. But listen, I, I'm not not going to dismiss that idea either. So UAB, uh, no longer the reigning champs in the West. Uh, something tells me they will not be down for long, though. And if I know Bill Clark, they will be uh, a contender next year as well. Uh, let's take a trip back to the East now and talk about Marshall beating Charlotte 49-28. to Marshall also still in the hunt for the league title with this victory. Uh, Grant Wells throwing for 267 yards and two touchdowns on 21 completions in this game. Uh, Rashina Lee turns in a monster day himself. 23 carries for 203 yards uh, and three touchdowns. Uh, five rushing touchdowns total for the herd. Uh, Marshall D also forcing a few turnovers. Uh, several issues for Charlotte in this game. Among them, 4 of 14 on third down. And uh, you know, Charlotte can still clinch bowl eligibility with a win uh, on Saturday this week, but got to say a little disappointing with how uh, Will Healy's team has played the last few weeks. Yeah, you're going to touch on the the third down rate. I'm touch on the turnovers. I mean, it's very hard, especially when you're trying to beat a very good Marshall team to turn over twice, right? And you can't have that happen. But And, I mean, listen, they did go 6-6 six of six on fourth down. So, I mean, at least, you know, when they did get to fourth down, they were able to convert, but – Again, just not – especially given the issues that Charlotte's had this year. In terms of defensive play, Rasheen Ali, 23 carries for 203 yards and three touchdowns. This is this year's Charlotte team reminds me a lot of the 2019 FIU team that I covered. One that had talent in major places, right? Quarterback, receivers, uh, you know, certain running backs. Charlotte Kern has Chris Reynolds, Shad Burns performed well this year, Grant DeBose, Vic Tucker. I mean, you know, they, they have a nice litany of receivers and you know, Taylor Thompson, tight end. But just defensively, it, you got to get something, right? And it can't be this 588 total yards, 21 of 28. And Joe, that's a backbreaker, right? Like, I, I think sometimes we say those passing numbers and we kind of just rattle them off. 
But when you're as a as a defense, if you're allowing over 60, 65 percent, um, let's say 65, I think that's a better metric. 60 is 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 actually pretty decent in today's uh, day and age. But if you're allowing over 65 percent completions and giving giving up that many yards, it, it's just really making it difficult to win. And then you look at the yards per carry for Marshall, seven point three. So. Yeah, it's if you look at Will Healy's team this year and really what's been their undoing, it's been defense. And then, yeah, I mean, we can talk about the fact that at five and six now, and I talk about this on the Roost podcast, which I'm sorry, Joe, I did have you know a, a bit of an affair on you with uh, Matt Bartlett and the Roost. I taped this podcast earlier this week, but I, I just <laughs> I, I just think there's a there's a big and I and I'm gonna you know toss it back to you on this. There's a big difference in feeling for Will Healy if you make a bowl game this year and you can say, Hey, we've made a bowl game in two or three seasons. And I know it's just one game, right? You don't want to put so much emphasis on one game, but I think even coach Healy, cause he's a pretty transparent guy would admit it's a much better feeling to say we've gone to bowl games two of the last three years, as opposed to we went to a bowl game our first year and we've missed the last two. Yeah. I mean, momentum is so important when you talk about, just building a program and translating that into other, you know, off field uh, factors for success. But one thing that I will say about this Marshall team, uh, in addition to just the fact that they have, you know, corrected a lot of the issues from last year that led to that collapse. um, They're so balanced too. like great. Wells has had his off days and on days, Lately, he's been having some really good on days. And then, of course, you have Rasheen Ali to kind of lean back on in your run game. And, you know, I think when you talk about the most complete team in CUSA right now, it's it's UTSA, but Marshall's a close second. And they definitely showed that here. And they got one more chance to show it against uh, Western Kentucky next week. Next week. Yeah, I mean that again. That'll be a very interesting game. I mean, I, I, I don't know how you feel about the show, but I, I do really like. Granted, while you know Western, I mean, I could have seen Western competing for the East this year. I'm sure some other people couldn't have, but I really like the fact that we've got a one game deal here, right? It's not clinched, just like we had last week. I don't know about you, but that to me is really exciting. It is, it is, and we'll definitely talk about that uh, in the preview section because there's a lot of kind of yin and yang uh, going up against each other in that Marshall-Western Kentucky game. Um, for now, though, let's talk about Old Dominion beating Middle Tennessee State 24-17, uh, to 17, the final. ODU surprising some people in this one, including our own Joe Serpico, and as the person who mans our, our Twitter account for most of the weekend, we were catching a lot of flack for how he predicted this game to go. Uh, neither team executed great, uh, but ODU might just clinch bull eligibility thanks to this performance. Uh, Ricky Ronnie is on to something in Norfolk, that's for sure. So this is kind of my thought on this game, and I, <laughs> when you look at ODU, and I guess I'll do it in the form of a question before I give my full thoughts. Joe, while both these teams have the same record, didn't you just feel, even coming into this game, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm biased because I, I just saw ODU play live and I didn't, you know, I didn't make the trip to Murfreesboro. But don't you feel better about ODU as a program than just coming to this game? I could just be a, a figment of my imagination. I'm curious your thoughts. I definitely feel better about Old Dominion as a program right now. <clears throat> and I think that's for a lot of reasons, but... I mean, I'll, I'll say this. I really feel good about where they are at the quarterback position. I mean, you have a freshman, Hayden Wolf, who, you know, definitely has some growing to do. 
uh, in terms of his game, not physically because the kid's huge. But <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think you have to be really happy with kind of the momentum that they're building in this game in a year where people weren't really uh, expecting much due to, I mean, a lot of factors, but mainly it's Ricky Ronnie's first real go round as a head coach. And they didn't play at all last year. So yeah, I'd feel really good about where Old Dominion is as a program. Okay, so I'm glad it's not just a figment of my imagination. You kind of touched on where I was going with, right? It's not that I want to down Rick Stockstill because, listen, the fact he's got him in bowl contention, especially given some of the situation they've had at the quarterback position, Nick Vadiato looks to be a player, kind of surprising a little bit in the fact that you know he's been able to develop as quickly as he has, considering the fact he was, what, third or fourth string entering this year, a true freshman. But you mentioned Hayden Wolf, and I just really wonder – I, I, Joe, I don't know how you feel about this. I am someone who tends to give coaches the benefit of the doubt, specifically when it comes to the quarterback situation, and that if a guy is not starting, I'm going to assume that he's not showing you enough in practice to earn the job, right? Now, that's not to say that I haven't been around certain certain situations, certain circumstances where a, core, a coach brings a guy in and it's like, hey, I didn't recruit player X. I went out to get player Y. I'm going to give him every chance, every shot to win the job, and then I'll go back. And maybe we'll hear in the offseason what Ricky Ronnie's method was, right? But Hayden Wolf, even when I saw him as a true freshman, you mentioned that he's a freshman. Joe, he's a third year. He's one of those COVID year freshmen. So he, he's redshirt sophomore, damn near a junior. You know what I mean? Like, So, yes, he has growing to do. But I just would love to see what he can get with a full season out of him because he's shown enough as a passer, even in that true freshman year, which he played. I can't remember what his third start was his final start of 2019. I want to say it was against Middle Tennessee, Joe, that he threw the ball something like 65 times. So any quarterback, especially at 18, 19 years old, fresh out of high school, can do that at the D1 level. You want to see more of. And I guess you can't do the coulda, woulda, shoulda, especially because ODU lost those three games by you – know, they had three of their six losses were by you know less than one score or one score or less. But I really wish we could have gotten a full year out of Hayden Wolf. And listen, I've seen DJ Mack being a UCF guy. I don't blame him, Ricky, him being Ricky Ronnie, for choosing to go with DJ Mack and see what's there. But once you saw the numbers, especially the, the passing numbers – I just felt like Hayden Wolf had at least established himself that much. If maybe he's not the athlete that DJ Mack is, and he might not necessarily be the prototypical athlete that you want in that system, that you know he had certainly more mobile quarterbacks at Penn State, I would have wanted to see a little bit more of Hayden Wolf. So that's just kind of my you know soliloquy there. In terms of this game, Blake Watson, a really, really good story. I've talked about him before, return man turned starting running back on the verge of his first 1,000-yard year. And they've found, they've unlocked these receivers, guys who they didn't see him. And this was the same thing in 19 when they were starting Stone Smart and Messiah DeWeaver. It looked like they didn't have any receivers, right? And then you throw Hayden Wolf in there and all of a sudden guys have put up 100-yard days. It's the same thing here. So just really interested to see how ODU can close. But all in all, I think this season has been a success. Yeah, and I mean, I think people will double down on those feelings if they are able to, uh, you know, get a victory in their last game of the season. Well, I mean, their last regular season game of the season next week. Um, but I agree that Hayden Wolf is definitely not the dual threat guy that DJ Mack is and that some of the other uh, quarterbacks that Old Dominion has had in the past are. But I think if you, you know, kind of focus for the next couple of years, on bringing in, you know, just, you know, an O-line that can kind of continue to protect him and then, uh, also continue to build up a, a younger guy in Blake Watson. I think in either next year or the year after, I think Old Dominion is going to be a CUSA contender. 
Listen, I we you know we'll talk about the UTEP game coming up in a bit, UTEP and Rice. But listen, I wouldn't be surprised if next year if they had that kind of breakout of success that UTEP had this year. Time will tell. Uh, so I'm interested to see what happens there. You mentioned Rice. Let's talk about them. Uh, they lose to UTEP over the weekend, 38 to 28. Rice did lead at the half, but a career day for Gavin Hardiston at UTEP that included 366 passing yards and two touchdowns, which gives the Miners their seventh win of the year. Uh, Got to be pretty happy with that second half performance by UTEP. Uh, for Rice, I think beating Tech next week is especially critical when you talk about Mike Bloomgren's future. I, you know, I don't know that, you know, Rice is kind of thinking about this in the same way that I am, but I think at a certain point you have to kind of abandon the thought of, you know, we need somebody who, you know, has experience at the, you know, programs like Stanford, Vanderbilt, et cetera, academic standards, all that. And, you know, just kind of go with somebody who maybe has success, like, you know, building a winning program, not to say that Mike Bloomgren is a bad you know, offensive mind because he, he's proven that time and time again, but he's, he's just not getting it done. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to save kind of my, as you know, let, let's, let's do it here. Um, as I mentioned, I went on the, the roost podcast earlier this week and I don't want to go too long, Joe, because again, you know, we've gone long in a few games, but, and I think we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but now that we're here at three and eight and you brought it up in terms of him needing a win next week, Joe, blanket statement, two blanket statements, yes or no. One, do you feel that Rice is any further along now, how many years, four years in the Mike Bloomgren era, that than they were coming off of David Bailiff? I, I feel like Rice is a little bit ahead of where they were when you look at uh, the last year of, Dave, of David Bailiff's uh, tenure as Rice head coach in 2017. They finished that year 1-11. and 11. Uh, And then Mike Bloomgren came in, and he won three games in 2019 uh, after winning two in 2018. Then uh, won two in 2020 as well. Granted, they only played five games. And then this year, uh, they're winning three games. And it really doesn't feel like there's been that much of an improvement. Maybe if it if it does for some people, I think that's a little bit inflated by the wins over UAB this year and Marshall last year. Um, And I think what I think Rice's administration will tell themselves if Rice are able to win next week is, Hey, four wins. That is the most we've had since 2015 before, like right before David Bailiff really fell off. So, but I think if that doesn't happen, I think that's the thing that's going to inevitably make them look at where they are and think, I really thought we were going to grow faster than this after bringing in this guy who, uh, you know, coached, uh, you know, Christian McCaffrey and and all these, uh, you know, big names at Stanford. Um, So it's, I don't envy that position, but I I don't think Mike Bloomgren is going to last much longer if he can't summon some wins here. Okay, second question. And again, I, you're not a Rice beat writer, so I'm not asking you to get you know too nuanced. But just from what you've seen, do you believe they're any more talented per se than they were coming off the David Bailiff era? No. So the reason I ask both those questions, Joe, is because I'm just for me, if I'm an AD, it's got to be one or the other, right? We're either further ahead than we were 
when you started this job. Or seemingly I can point to the talent on this roster and say, all right, we, we're more talented. Just some things need to click here or there. And I can't definitively say that with Rice. You know, Matt Bartlett at the Roost mentioned that Jake Constantine was supposed to be the starter. And when he's come in, he's played reasonably well. And I think that's that's okay. But here's where I got to push back on that, Joe. And I'm sure you're going to agree with this. You also brought in Luke McCaffrey. And I don't know necessarily if you're saying, hey, okay, Luke McCaffrey is a project player and he's getting some time to develop. But that leads me to believe, just from an outsider's perspective, that you're not wholly sold on Jake Constantine. Again, I, I, for the UTEP fans, you know, I'm going to touch him really quick. I, I don't want to harp on Rice, right? But it just seems hard. And it's because I – and maybe the reason I struggle with this is because if you asked me this question last year or the year before, I was all in on Mike Bloomgren. The defense played well under Brian Smith. And offensively, they just needed a quarterback, right? But the fact that you have not been able to get a guy out of high school in Texas where seemingly – you got a decent amount of quarterbacks. You kind of stumble into one, right? And it's consistently been the transfer portal. I don't know. It just feels it, it just feels a little off. I, I personally speaking, again, I'm never going to advocate for a coach being fired. I wouldn't have an issue bringing him back, um, just because you can make the changes you're going to the American. But I also can understand the POV, which is like, hey, if we can't answer one of those two questions with a definitive yes, where are we? And to transition to UTEP. That's what Dana Dimmel's been able to do, right? Because even though the wins didn't come early, and you could last year they had the, what, the three wins, three and four, three and five record, I believe it was, you at least saw the seeds of it with guys like Gavin Hardison and Deion Hankins, of course, is injured and is gonna, you know, doesn't look like he's going to play um, next week. We'll see. But you saw the signs of it, right, with Hardison and Jacob Kong and Justin Garrett. You can at least point to guys and praise Amahule on defense and say, all right, we see some players. The wins aren't there yet, but we see some players. Like um, Jim Center said, we're not quite there yet, right? Well, now he certainly is there with that there referring to a contract extension. And that's where I kind of liken the two, the two you know, rebuilds, in my opinion. Yeah, you raised a really good point that I didn't even think about with recruiting. Like, how is that possible that he hasn't brought in a QB1 caliber quarterback at a high school yet? Right. Like that, that's a, that's a true statement, right? Like Wiley Green was a transfer. Luke McCaffrey was a transfer. Have all the quarterbacks that he's played with either come from, you know, a recruiting class from the previous, from the previous uh, regime or been transfers? <sighs> to the best of my, I, I would have to go through, I, I don't remember Wiley Green was recruited, right? So you got Constantine, you got um, uh, the kid from, from Harvard. Um, I'm forgetting his name right now. Um, you got the kid from Wake Forest who started in 18. So yeah, they all have been transfers. I, to the best of my recollection, they all have been transfers. Um, of course, um, then Mike Collins. So Mike Collins last year, Jane Constantine this year, the kid from Harvard, um, I think it was Harvard, who transferred back home, uh, Tom Stewart. Tom Stewart in, in 19. And then, dear God, what was his name in 2018? Uh, that's going to bother me, Joe. Pick it up really quick and I'll have his name. It's going to bother um, Sean Sean Stankovich. Thank you. Um, the kid in 18. Yeah, so they've all been transfers. That's wild to me. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think if, if you're really at that point where you haven't been able to recruit a quarterback that fits what Rice needs, uh, especially in Texas, like you said, like – 
there's plenty of smart kids in Texas. Like, <laughs> I don't know. That's wild. And I think it's further evidence to, to my point is that Blake, Mike Bloomgren might not be the guy. I mean, we'll see. I mean, I just to kind of put a cap on it, you know, like Wiley Green, I'm looking at right now. Wiley Green, I believe, was a, a Bloomgren recruit, but that, that one hasn't worked out either. So just the fact that you have had to go with the transfers each time, it's – and I, listen, I don't want to bash Mike Bloomgren because, I mean, the transfer is a thing. But at that position, I'm sure you and I agree. It's never a good look to have to, you know, four years have to go to the portal to find your starter. No, not at all. And it's ironic considering how – hyped we were about his hire and how much we compared him to Dana, uh, how much we compared him to Dana Dimmel and what Dana Dimmel's been able to do the last couple of years, which has been really impressive. So I don't know, just goes to show you what, <laughs> you know, don't judge a book by its cover, I guess. With that, then let's talk about one more game from this past weekend. And I know you're gonna have a lot to say about it, Eric, uh, North Texas beating FIU 49 to seven, Rough senior day showing for FIU was also military appreciation night. Uh, Panthers allowed 611 total yards to a surging North Texas offense. I believe this is their fourth straight win. Uh, Also doesn't help the Panthers cause when you can't run the ball and keep the opposing offense off of the field. Uh, Just 58 rushing yards for the Panthers in this one. But uh, Eric, you were there, uh, provided a lot of coverage on Twitter and uh, on the site with uh, this being one of Butch Davis's last game, his last home game as the FIU head coach. Um, Give me your perspective. Oh boy. Okay. Yeah. I mean, in terms of (laughs) the FIU game, I mean, certainly a lot to take in it. It, it, it would, I'm not gonna lie, Joe, it was tough to watch. And I think I say that as someone who covers the team and has gotten a chance to know a lot of these guys who had their senior night, Joe, you know, these are guys who are part of a, a run of three straight years with a bowl. And I've seen them have tremendous success, you know, and I just think there's a confluence of things. I, I, I try not to go too long, but when you look at this roster, you have heavy, you know, seniors at the top, like the Dames twins and Kevin Oliver and Daniel Jackson and, you know, Bryce Singleton and Devonte Price. But then you also have so many young guys, you know, so many freshmen, I believe 40 something players. You combine the two years of, uh, from COVID and this year, are freshmen, and then you have the transfers. I think it's something like 61 or 62 guys in an FIU uniform have not beaten an FBS team. Excuse me, they have not beaten an FBS team in FIU uniform. That's just a huge discrepancy in terms of talent. So certainly was tough to see, you know, these guys try to get out there and then the injuries and the amount of walk-ons they're playing. Joe, this was – there's no other way to put it. I mean, yeah, the second quarter has been disastrous for FIU really for the past four or five weeks, but even in the opening quarter – FIU didn't look like they were going to be able to compete. And Devontae Price was hurt. And Butch Davis did say post-game that that injury against ODU looks like Devontae's played his last snap in FIU uniform. He's going to prep for the pros, and rightfully so with all the draft stock he has. But they, you know, they being North Texas, almost three backs with a thousand, it's a thousand yards with a hundred yards in the game. DeAndre Torrey led the way with, with 18 carries for um, 109 yards. And then, of course, you had Ayaka Ragsdale, who I believe had 103 yards, 104, 611 total yards overall. And Joe, again, this game was 35 nothing at halftime. Seth Luttrell called the dogs off very much. You know, the the, the TD pass that Borslager had to Chambers, that was just, you know, semantics at best. So it's just, I guess overall, I guess my point is it's just very stunning to see 
not necessarily the fact that the FIU program has fallen off. I mean, that, you know, not that you expect that, but it happens. But they're getting blitzed by 40 every game. <laughs> you can't, there's, that is, 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 you know, it, it's been shocking. I'll put it to you that way. So um, certainly on the field was surprising. And then, of course, you know, I did note on Twitter that Butch Davis, listen, we've talked at Nazm about his, Feelings about the FIU administration that the he said to Brett McMurphy felt they've sabotaged the program. I noted that Butch Davis, when he came out, he and for the record, Butch Davis did say when I asked him about this Bob and post game that it was military night and they did honor each branch of the military uh, at the halfway or the midway point of each quarter. They honored each branch of the military, but Butch Davis came out noticeably absent was any FIU regalia, any FIU logo from his attire. He wore a Navy shirt over an FIU. It was an FIU undershirt, like a coach's undershirt. Um, the Adidas logo on his neckline was covered up by a naval pin, it looked like, an American flag and a naval pin. And he wore his U.S. Enterprise hat. When I asked Butch Davis postgame, he said, hey, it was military night. And, you know, I have a strong, strong connection to the military through, you know, extended family and whatnot. And that answer very well, very well may be true. But you can't and, – and I said this – I think I said this on Twitter. If Butch Davis hadn't have made the comments he made about the administration, I would have never noted what he was wearing. But it would be almost irresponsible on my part when someone comes out and talks about you know, the lack of spending. He had comments that day that he made to Walter V of the Miami Herald, or at least – I don't know, me, I shouldn't say he made them that day, but Walter published them earlier that day, earlier the, around noon of game day more comments from Butch Davis uh, regarding his frustration with the administration. So I just felt it was only right to note that notably absent. He was the only coach. He said it was military night. He was the only coach on his, on his staff to not bring any FIU regalia. So it seems like we'll be in for interesting, uh, as we're taping this on Tuesday night, interesting last five, six days of the Butch Davis tenure. But hey, on to North Texas, five and six. They've given themselves a fighting shot. You know, give that defense credit because they – Certainly had their issues over the past few years and early part of this year, stopping uh, imposing offenses, keeping off the board, and then giving themselves a shot to a uh, clinch a bowl. I mean, it's going to be tough next week, but they give themselves a shot. Yeah, you know, I, real quick on on North Texas, but what's been great to see for me is just kind of how they've really. I mean, it took them long enough, but they were really able to kind of figure out what they had on the offensive side of the ball, right? In addition to uh, a huge improvement on the defensive side of the ball, being able to kind of shift focus uh, to, you know, DeAndre Torrey and get him going and really build the offense around him. While simultaneously, Ostinani improving the way that he has to kind of spark this, uh, this run that they're on. You know, I think Seth Luttrell has kind of, you know, I, I think – he's put himself in a position where his team can end the year on a positive note. And just, again, we talked about momentum with Charlotte and how important it is. I think North Texas is uh, getting to the other side of that where they, if, if nothing else, have some positive momentum going into the off season that they can, you know, center around and realize and, you know, tell their team, all right, this is what we did. Well, let's keep doing this. This is what we have to do more consistently, i.e. not have, you know, a miserable scoring defense. But it's something. And at the beginning of the year, this this team looked dire. So for them to have improved the amount that they have the last few weeks, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just say good on Seth Luttrell and his staff. Uh, I, my take on the FIU thing is I, I, I just genuinely feel bad for these seniors. They've been dragged into 
and not just the seniors, their whole team has really been dragged into, you know, just some unprofessional drama. That's not their fault. And, you know, I don't know. It's very frustrating that they kind of had to put up with the things that they put up with. I, I, I don't think it's too out there to say that the coaching staff's focus was not 100% on this game, given the fact that, I mean, obviously Butch Davis is, you know, a week and a half from, you know, either retirement or moving on to other professional ventures. Uh, and the coaching staff are more than likely, most of them are probably, I would imagine, going to have to find other jobs as well. And it's, yeah. And I mean, I don't know. That's, that's the point of college athletics is to help, uh, you know, prepare your kids for the professional world in one form or another. And, you know, I, it's, it's frustrating because I don't think that happened in the midst of all this from, and I think part of that, um, part of that blame goes on, uh, goes on the FIU administration as well as, as well as Butch Davis here. So it's, it's frustrating for me, for me. Yeah. You know, and, and listen, I don't have necessarily have any reason to believe that the coaching staff, you know, that their attention has been split per se. I'm not necessarily you're saying that, but again, it would be, I think it'd be disingenuous to act as if the entire situation is not a distraction. Right. Like, I just think that and we spoke to Richard Dames post game and listen, a lot of these seniors, you you've we've seen a lot of Twitter statements from these seniors saying, hey, you know, Coach Davis, thank you. Coach Davis is my guy. Uh, others. Right. So for the seniors, yes. But for the young guys who are having to step in and play, it's different. You know, if you're a senior and you got a couple and, and Joe, for a point of reference, FIU only has nine seniors on this roster in class, but they had 22 players to participate in senior day. So that may give you an idea of the players who are upper class who may decide that they're going to move on as well and utilize their additional year elsewhere, right? Because they're that loyal to Butch Davis. But for these younger guys, I don't know how you block that stuff out because you got Sione Fanau, who's been a three-year starter at left guard, or excuse me, at guard, right guard and left guard. He'd started and was in the game notes as a starter. We saw him in street clothes and came out yesterday that he hit the transfer portal and the, the kids got like Joe randomly enough, like eight offers. He's announcing within the past like seven, uh, seven hours he had multiple offers from conference USA schools and, you know, power five schools. So, you know, take that for what it's worth, but that has to be a distraction, right? When one week you're lined up with someone, next thing you know, they're in the portal and you got younger guys in the portal and the older guys are, you know, looking to finish up their careers. It's just not a conducive situation for anybody. No, not at all. And, you know, I'll, I'll give the remaining FIU athletic administration credit in that I'll hope the current FIU administration will kind of take the proper steps to implement uh, a proper regime tra- regime change and get a leader into this program. Not to say, I, you know, first of all, I have no problem with Butch Davis personally. I just think the stress built up over the last few years and the situations that he's been put into – uh, partially through fault of his own, partially through mismanagement of athletic department resources. I think that's enough to push anybody over the edge. That being said, I think just getting someone with a fresh perspective and a fresh energy in there is going to be vital for this program. And, you know, re uh, rebuilding that, that sense of, you know, pride that so many FIU people and FIU student athletes feel. 
Listen, Joe, I know we're going to go into the middle section of this podcast. So, you know, if you don't mind, I, we might do a little producing here on the fly. We are going to talk Western Kentucky, but I just figured mm-hmm. since I mentioned it on radio last night, I should, of course, mention it here with you. You talked about FIU administration and, and directions they may go. I said on Twitter last night that, you know, there are, first off, uh, the search firm Turnkey ZRG. I was going to say that slow because it kind of trips me up. Turnkey ZRG. They are assisting in the search for a new athletic director. And I have had a couple names that have, um, I, I, you know, kind of have on good authority that are definitely in the mix. And one I, I, that I feel, excuse me, what I feel comfortable reporting here is Courtney Gosha, who is the current ad at florida a&m and anyone who's paid attention to some of the happenings on the site over the past few weeks we have you know, published some things on famu being an hbcu that has qualified for the fcs playoffs shout out to jared miller for the great work he's done there but that could be an interesting hire given the fact that and joe listen i know i'm hitting you with this completely out of the blue so i'm not expecting you to have any information on this but i just figured we could uh, we could transition really quick he's someone of a rising star he's someone who prior to his time at famu he spent a year at University of Miami as an associate AD of uh, of game ops. And then really before then, he spent two years at Middle Tennessee and then spent a, uh, four years as well, you know, between times at, between stops at Jacksonville State. Um, excuse me, I think he spent, uh, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. He spent six years at Middle Tennessee from 2012 to 2018. So someone who is familiar with Conference USA and then is a graduate of Jacksonville State. So he's familiar with an incoming program at Jack, uh, of CUSA as well. Um, a young guy, someone who's you know, 34, 35 years old. So definitely interesting there. And another name to keep an eye on is Jim Frivola, who I uh, believe he is the chief operating, office, uh, chief operating officer excuse me, of the um, NHL's Las Vegas Golden Knights. Let me make sure I get his Tyler correct. He's, excuse me, he's the uh, senior vice president and chief sales offer, officer of the Las Vegas Golden Knights. But prior to them, prior to that stop, he'd also spent some time uh, in, with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers as their partnership offer and also some time at the University of Miami as an assistant AD. So uh, definitely has some experience around the horn. So in terms of just, I, I figured I would mention those two things, Joe, because you talk about FIU leadership and you know how they're going to have to be able to get things going. Two things really quick. One, to your point about where things kind of disintegrated, I think you got to look at the disintegration of Butch Davis and Pete Garcia's relationship. And unfortunately, that's the type of thing you're talking about where the student athletes, that's well above their pay grade. And you see how it trickles down and plays an effect here. But the second thing is I'm expecting a hire to be announced 10 to 14 days after the football season uh, tops. So, you know, maybe next week when we take this podcast, we can get into head coaching candidates for FIU because I certainly have some names there as well. But uh, things are, are, are in motion uh, at FIU. So figured, you know, that was a decent segue into that. Yeah, and <laughs> I, I, it makes sense to me. I mean, keep in mind, FIU has many other sports besides football and having an athletic department running football or no with no athletic director is – uh, <laughs> I, I don't having been in that position, uh, for a short time at the university of Louisville, that is not a fun time. So yeah, you need somebody, uh, somebody good and somebody dependable in there immediately. And, uh, you know, listen, this firm's kind of past body of work is good. So, uh, I think FIU is headed in the right direction in that, uh, in that respect, it's just a shame that it kind of went this way. And real quick on Courtney Gosha, I say give him a shot. He's a young guy. I think FIU, like I said, needs fresh perspective. I think he can provide that. Let's see what happens. 
with the, you know with that we've we've talked a lot about FIU. Um, first off, um, let's let's shift back to uh, Western Kentucky because uh, Lord knows I can talk about that for <laughs> just as long. Um, I wrote like two thousand words on the site this week about Bailey Zappi's body of work this year and why he should be considered for postseason awards. Uh, in my opinion, the Heisman. Um, he's 12 touchdowns shy of Joe Burrow's single season uh, touchdowns record of 60. He's got 48 right now. Uh, he's also uh, really close to uh, breaking Western Kentucky's single season yardage record. Only needs 415 more yards. And then at the rate he's going, he's uh, racking up 421.8 passing yards per game. If all goes to plan, Western will play three more games. So theoretically, that would put him at about 5,905 passing yards for the year. And that would be the most in a season in FBS history. Pretty good season, right? That being said, uh, we're not seeing Zappi named as a finalist for you know any of these uh, major postseason awards. And what's crazy to me is not only is that happening, we didn't see Jared Stearns named as a finalist for the Bletnikoff, even though he's having a monster year. And uh, I believe it's the Broyles Award that's awarded to the top assistant coach. No Zach Kitley either. So, like, I don't know. I mean, Todd Stewart put out a tweet today that was like, you know, is <laughs> I forget what the wordage was exactly, but basically he said, like, in today's world, logic and reason logic and facts don't <laughs> dictate how decisions are made clearly that was on display today <laughs> when you know kitley uh zappy and, and stearns were not named as these you know award finalists and you know <laughs> it's got to be a frustrating few months for todd stewart with all this other stuff that he's been dealing with with the uh move to the mac that got shut down and whatnot but i mean just to kind of bring this to a general g5 question eric what in the world? <laughs> what? Because like we didn't see Desmond Ritter in there either. We we saw very few uh, G five guys. I don't. I in what I've seen, I don't believe I've seen any G five guys named for these major postseason awards. And when you think about you know performances like Zappies, like UTSA's, they're nationally ranked. Like San Diego State's even or Cincinnati. None of those guys have been talked about, and that's that's really wild to me. First off, Joe, got to say, you know, congrats and fine work on the article. If you have not checked it out, I highly recommend it. It's a great piece. Well done by Joe Londergan. Listen, it's troubling. And quite frankly, I may go in and pen 2000 words on just in my mind, the disrespect of group of five level. And we've talked about it in terms of the college football playoff. That's one thing. But we've got to stop with this informal line of demarcation that essentially separates Group of Five football from Power Five football. And we're seeing it here with this award. It's mind-boggling to me how Bailey Zappi, someone who, if this is a college football award, is on the precipice of breaking all types of records. And single-season records are one thing, but hes it's not as if there's – another power five player who's having an equal year. No, Zappi is the guy. And Jarrett Stearns is the guy. Maybe a little bit closer in the receiver position. And maybe if you want to say, you know, it's an air raid offense, right? So it's Stearns, 
you're not going to have, you know, 20 yards per catch, but that's in my mind, semantics. That's, that's nitpicking. I, I don't know why he's being penalized because you can't, Joe, you don't say when Randy Moss had a hell of a year in 1997, you didn't say, Oh, well he did it against inferior competition. No. If you want to take into account that garbage, you know, with the, the, the BCS and computer rankings and all that crap in the college football playoff. All right, fine, whatever. I still don't agree, but you, that's fine. Um, uh, not, I'm not okay justifying, but I'm saying I'll at least grant you that because you're deciding, quote unquote, a, a national champion, right? If it is the best college football player at that position, there's no way you're telling me that Bailey Zappi and Jared Stearns are not among that list. It's just no way. Yeah, it, like with quarterbacks, I almost expected it with zappy because hey like i I really don't have a reason for this because in my mind it should be you know like to their benefit when it comes to awards but history has not been kind to air raid quarterbacks when it comes to these these major awards and in my mind if you're throwing the ball 60 times a game and still having that kind of success then doesn't that really show like how good of a, a passer you are, right? Like it's it's crazy to me. Like, <laughs> I mean, you I, like I use the example of Texas Tech in, in the article and talking about uh, B.J. Simons and Graham Harrell in the two thousands, and I, I think the B.J. Simons was tenth in Heisman voting in two thousand three. And he has, I think, now, like, the second most passing yards in the season ever. Graham Harrell didn't even crack the top 10, and I believe he's the all-time leader. I might have those two mixed up, but the point remains. I, d- I don't understand why that, you know, why that remains. And, like, I don't know. And it's also it's also weird to me that while we're on the subject, we didn't see like Desmond Ritter in there either, because like, while he hasn't had like as statistically as fantastic a year as uh, Zappy, a lot of people would say like, all right, well you give this award to, uh, you know, some of the best players on teams that are ranked Cincinnati's ranked. So they're as of today, they're number four in the college football playoff rankings and Still no love. So I really don't know what I like. I don't know what teams like Western Kentucky and UTSA and UAB and Cincinnati and, and Coastal Carolina, Appalachian State, all these teams are, are supposed to do. Now, ultimately, that's not why, in theory, that's not why these guys, you know, sign on for these programs. It's not why uh, it's not why we play the games for these individual awards. They play to win championships. But it's just like, I don't know. The more I listen to the reasoning provided by committees like the College Football Playoff Committee and these award committees for, you know, the Bletnikoff, the Davy O'Brien, the Heisman, the more I'm like, are you guys even watching the games? Like, I don't, I don't understand that. Again, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I can come any stronger than my feelings that I just not a huge fan of this. And yeah, I think you hit it right in terms of are they even watching the games? Because I think it plays even more so into my point in terms of that informal or seemingly formal line of demarcation between Power 5 and G5. If you're watching the games, I just, again, I don't know how you can come 
to that conclusion. And it, again, it feels to me like this is a, well, they do it against competition X or competition Y, but they're not asking who's the top four teams or top five teams in the playoff. The reasonably speaking, excuse me, relatively speaking, the level of competition in Conference USA is pretty much, you know, level all the way across, right? I mean, sure, you have some teams, you get FIU right now, they're struggling, you know, Southern Miss has struggled, UTSA is having a great year, but relatively speaking, Bailey Zappi is is playing against competition that's somewhere around his talent level each week, and not to mention, they played against Power 5 teams earlier this year, so it's just, it's frustrating overall. For sure. And like, I don't know, maybe it's, it just gets to this point where like all we're doing is complaining, but at the same time, like, I don't know what the solution is. Like, you know, every once in a while, you're going to have these opportunities like UCF and Cincinnati and BYU are going to have, and uh, what's Houston are going to have to jump into the power five, but like, surely there has to be a better solution than just, well, play better. And maybe you'll get an invitation to play with the quote unquote big boys. Like that doesn't, that's not realistic to me. And like, you know, at a certain point, like maybe this is just like further evidence. We need to like rethink the whole system. If guys like this are uh, getting to this level of achievement and not being recognized for it. Meanwhile, you have systems like Ohio states and Alabama's where frankly, like the system is so refined it almost doesn't matter who plays quarterback. And that maybe some people would say that's a stretch, but I don't think you have the success that they've had year in, year out, if that isn't the case. So it speaks more to individual performance that things, you know, change and evolve much more, you know, rapidly and more year to year at these other programs outside of the power five. Um, when you have these guys that adapt to those changes and still put in these incredible performances and these committees just don't care. It's crazy. It's crazy. Joe, uh, Joe I'll, I'll wrap it up on this from my end and say it pretty quite simply, you talked about air raid quarterbacks, not getting enough love. And if you want to say it's a system, you can make the same case that Alabama's a hell of a system. And that's not to say, you know, every quarterback at Alabama succeeded, but damn, Nick Saban is a you know college Hall of Fame coach, greatest coach of all time. You don't think there's some of that? That's just hey, just plug and play, and you're going to get a Heisman candidate. I mean, I it's I, sure. I think it's again a bigger testament to Saban and the sure, system that sure. he created than it is that player. Right, right, right. And and, and and no, I understand your point is that this is a testament to Bailey Zappi. I'm just saying, if if I'll make this clear, it's not it's not my case. Uh, my argument that this is a system thing with Bailey Zappi. I'm saying if for whatever reason, you know, some of the 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 reason that these guys aren't being recognized is oh, well, they are in a system that produces eye popping numbers. Again, I can I just feel like you can make the same case with you know some of the top five schools in the nation that you plug and play and they're going to put up you know relatively video game numbers and they'll end up at New York and for the Heisman ceremony. Like I I think it's a pretty decent parallel. Yeah, and I, I won't spend the time arguing this because we've gone uh we've gone a long time about it but you know it's one thing to be it's understandable obviously to be riled up about uh, people like zappy and desmond ritter not winning these awards because they're on the field but when you look at zach kitley and the improvement 
that he pretty much single-handedly has put into this WKU offense. Like they're scoring like 23 more points a game than they were last season. And that is the best improvement in scoring in FBS by a significant margin, at least by eight or nine points, I believe. How in the world is he not a finalist for assistant coach of the year? Like, no, I, there's no assistant coach that's had as big of an impact on their team than him. That's, that's crazy to me that he wasn't. So we'll move on from there. So with that, we'll wrap up the last week of the regular season uh, for Conference USA, starting with U, or, yeah, starting with UAB and UTEP at 2 p.m. Eastern on Friday night, Black Friday, ESPN Plus, uh, UAB minus 13 and a half heading into this game. Uh, I'm picking UAB. You know, I think, you know, for both these teams, it's really a matter of pride and a matter of like positioning yourself for a better bowl game. Uh, but, you know, as good as UTEP has been this year and as much improvement as they've shown, UAB still UAB. And I mean, they were literally one play away from being uh, CUSA West champs again this year for like the fifth straight year. So give me UAB in this one. I am with you. This would be a huge test for UTEP, a uh, huge achievement for them. If they can knock off UAB, especially because in the fact that they've had some opportunities, you know, they had that stretch where they played FAU, couldn't beat them, uh, had a chance to get some other teams, you know, UTSA and others, but uh, give me UAB. I just think UAB is going to be fired up, especially coming off that heartbreaking loss to UTSA, and they'll be out to prove that. While they are no longer the beasts of the West, of the well, I make pluralized West, they're not the beasts of the West. Uh, they certainly still are a very strong Conference USA team. Then we have Rice hosting Louisiana Tech on Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Plus. Uh, Tech minus three and a half heading into this one. Um, I think this one's going to be a really close game, as that line would tell you. Um, you know, I'm going to pick Louisiana Tech. I think it's one of these games that, like, for both of these teams, it's, again, a matter of pride. I think they're both three and seven at this point. Um, not the year that Louisiana Tech wanted. Um, for this offensive unit, I think they've got one more solid game in them. And, I mean, Rice is just kind of hitting that point in the year where, like, they nothing's just going their way. So I think Louisiana Tech takes advantage of that and gets a victory to close the year out. I'm very torn on this one because obviously we've talked about La Tech and their quarterback situation. The last I heard is it looks as if, as if Austin Kendall may be able to go, of course, which would be his final collegiate game. If Austin Kendall can play, give me Louisiana Tech. Otherwise, I think Mike Bloomberg is going to find a way to the fourth one. That would greatly help his uh, job security costs. And then we have North Texas hosting UTSA, number 22 UTSA, uh, 2 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Plus, UTSA minus 10 and a half. Look, for UTSA, this game really doesn't matter, but I, you can't tell them that. <laughs> so, um, And I don't think they would listen either way. Um, I think UTSA is going to take this one pretty handily. Uh, North Texas, you know, they, they've had a good run. They got so close yet so far. I really don't think UTSA is going to go the route of resting their guys for the CUSA championship game on December 3rd. If they do, then I think that's the window that North Texas would need in order to give themselves a fighting chance. But I just, I don't see this team doing that when they have an undefeated season on the line. There you go. That last line was what I was going to hit on. I think this UTSA team, listen, we we can save the college football playoff debate for another time and certainly think that undefeated teams should be ranked a lot higher than, than they are. Um, but this would be a, I, I don't want to say team of destiny. And it feels a little bit, you know, too strong, 
but it should be a magical year if they can go from start to finish undefeated and you aren't going to, you know, at this point, I understand resting because the conference title is certainly your, your, your goal, but I just think there's too much at line, give too much on the line, given the season they've had. So uh, I think they'll go all out and give me the Roadrunners. Then we have Old Dominion hosting Charlotte, 2 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Plus. ODU minus nine and a half. I think Old Dominion's going to win this game. Um, I think they're the better team right now. I don't know what Charlotte's really <laughs> doing, for lack of a better term. Um, I think just a lot of the the cracks in their armor have been exposed over the last couple of weeks, unfortunately. Um, and I, I think. Will Healy, knowing the kind of coach he is, he'll take the offseason to kind of correct those. But for this one, you know, I, I think Old Dominion just has too much momentum in their favor. So give me the uh, Monarchs. Yeah, Joe, you talk about too much momentum. Blake Watson is 77 yards away from his first thousand yard year going against one of the more porous run defenses in all of the nation. I think this will be the opportunity for the sophomore from Queens. He's going to get his first thousand yard campaign and some. Give me ODU. They are going to find a way to get to six wins. And that is going to be very, very impressive for Ricky Ronnie's club. Then we have Southern Miss hosting FIU, 3 p.m. Eastern on ESPN3. Southern Miss minus 10 and a half here. Uh, give me the Golden Eagles. Super back, uh, single t- single wing T formation for the win. Um, you know, I think this is going to be the kind of the last insult to add to injury for FIU, unfortunately. But, you know, to put a positive spin on it for Will Hall, I think given everything that his team kind of went through in the early part of the season with the injuries and just some of the, a lot of the tough losses that they dealt with, good on him for being able to put his team in a position where they're ending the year with some positive momentum and some some good vibes. Completely agree with you in terms of he talked about it in his Monday availability. Just it would be nice in terms of getting going into recruiting, even you know December recruiting, trying to close, going on a two game win streak to close the year out that way. So I am with you. The grand finale of the 2021 season for FIU. The grand finale for the Butch Davis era. I do believe it ends in a loss. FIU just too banged up injury wise again you know Devonte price is not gonna play dorian hall's not gonna play josh uh valentine turner's not gonna play finales in the transfer portal and that's in addition that's just you know not even counting some of the guys i've had who've left the program and just too banged up right now you know a prideful group of seniors and guys who will play their last game as panthers but this is Southern Miss's game to win. There's a reason they're a 10-point favorite or a double-digit favorite, and I think they get the win. And then here's the big one, Eric. Marshall hosting Western Kentucky in Huntington. Supposed to be a packed crowd. 3.30 p.m. Eastern, CBS Sports Network. Marshall is minus one, according to Vegas. Um, and here's why I am so excited for this game. The key to beating Western Kentucky, in my opinion, is you have to have a balanced offense that can establish the run early. Marshall's very good at that. And when you combine that with the fact that Marshall's defensive line in particular has been giving opposing quarterbacks problems from the get-go all season, this is going to be Western Kentucky's toughest test in a, a while, since the UTSA game. That being said, call me a homer, call me whatever, I really don't see the group that's in this Western Kentucky offense that we talk so much about in this episode, you know, letting it all end here because I mean, they'll play a bowl game either way, obviously, but I think with all the momentum that they have built up mentally over the last month, 
and getting so close to the the records on the offensive side of the ball for Zappy and Stearns, which uh, some of which in um, what do you call it? rest on them being able to play three full games in terms of just the math. I don't see them losing this game. Uh, but <laughs> in the history of the moonshine throwdown, we have seen some insane results, some really high scoring games. And I think this is going to be another one, but I think Western Kentucky finds a way to pull this out. So I spent all that time talking about how I'm looking forward to seeing the rematch. And my gut is telling me that Charles Huff, this is the type of game when you hire a coach like him, who's been at Alabama, with everything on the line going against an incredible offense. I think somehow he and defensive corner Lance Guidry are going to find a way. I really think, Joe, Marshall, they can run the if they can run the football. And of course, that's a, a you know, a, a if that you can say about any team, right? But if they can get Rasheen Ali going, I just see a way that if Grant Wells, they protect the football. The best way is you cannot take three, you got to get sevens and, you know, again, control the football. And I think they're going to find a way. This game is in Huntington. I, that also is a key for me as well. Somehow, some way, uh, I'm taking Charles Huff's team. Real quick with Marshall and Western, I, I wanted to make note of this. The thing that makes me happy about this rivalry moving forward is the the divide between Tyson Helton and Charles Huff's personalities. I think you have Tyson Helton, who is, you know, he's he's uh, born in Gainesville but grew up all over the place. Has a very like Southern gentleman kind of personality to him um when you watch him in his pressers uh obviously you know loves the game loves his guys but really doesn't try to like stir the pot too much and then on the other side <laughs> you have charles huff uh you know this this guy out of out of uh maryland um and that's this is really the you know north south divide in my opinion charles huff has the very thick maryland accent comes in to most of his press conferences and is like here's what i'm mad about this week <laughs> so it's it's just gonna you know add to the atmosphere for years to come um and then to close things out we have fau hosting middle tennessee state uh at 7 p.m eastern on stadium fau minus three and a half you know look i think mtsu's had their issues but I'm going to pick MTSU for the upset because why not? Um, I think FAU, they really don't strike me as a team that's in a place to really recover from the, uh, frankly, pretty embarrassing losses that they've had the last few weeks. Um, and MTSU, you know, they're not, they're not a team without their merits. And I think they'll know that going into this game, this is the, this game's the difference between them and uh, between ending the season here and playing in a bowl game. So uh, give me the blue Raiders. It's funny, really quick, I, I, as you were making the, the distinction between Tyson Helton and Charles Huff. Yeah, they certainly are two different personalities. I, I mean, I like, like both guys, certainly like Charles Huff, you know, very, uh, you know, the guys can be very direct. And, you know, as you mentioned, he's this is what we can clean up and whatnot. So I just had to note that it, it is interesting difference in their personalities, both very hardcore football coaches, but just in different ways. So uh, I note that in terms of Middle Tennessee and Florida Atlantic. Man, you want to talk about the difference between going into a we just said this with with um, with ODU, you know, in terms of um, the, their situation. And we said it um, excuse me, with ODU and with Charlotte. And we said it with Rice and how things would look with them if they get this, this another win. But man, Joe, it is of the utmost importance that really Taggart's club find a way to get this win and get the six wins, because five and seven feels a whole lot different in Boca than six and six not that either way is either one is great but at least you got a bowl game to look forward to 
whereas he got a long offseason at five and seven, given the expectations. So that's my long-winded way of saying it'll be, first of all, a homecoming for Nick Vadiato. You know, he gets a chance to, while he's been playing there in Boca, that's about 30-ish minutes from plantation. So very much a homecoming for him. Um, playing in front of a ton of friends and family and middle Tennessee has a few guys, Greg great, of course, a Miami native. So definitely be a couple guys that will want to, you know, in their uh, final game of the year impress, but no, give me FAU. I just think not that Rick Stocks club doesn't have as much on the line, but I think you can feel better about your year. If you're Rick Stocks still saying, Hey, we went through a couple quarterbacks and, you know, we had to fight our way to get to five wins. Whereas Florida Atlantic is going to be a long off season in Boca if they cannot reach a bowl competition or bowl, uh, bowl eligibility. In this last week of the regular season, still plenty to play for, uh, both in terms of pride, job security, bowl games. Uh, it's got a little bit of everything. It's going to be fun. Uh, but thank you all so much for listening. As always, uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, it's at Underdog Dynasty, at J-O-E-H-I-O underscore, and at Eric C. Henry underscore. Um, been posting a lot on the site as of late, uh, especially with Conference USA stuff, so be sure to check that out. Uh, and, of course, subscribe on Apple and Spotify if you haven't already. Uh, leave us a review. really helps the show grow. And, uh, you know, just because the season's wrapping up doesn't mean we are not going to have uh, – <laughs> you playing the xylophone back there, Eric? What's going on? Well, sorry about that. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry. Uh, but we're going to have plenty of fun content in the offseason too, so make sure you're coming back for that if you're joining us for the first time. Eric, I'm excited about this weekend. Happy football watching, everybody. And this is probably going to go up on Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy the time with your families. Thank you.